In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Things seem to be turned around a little bit in our epistle. St. Paul, who is in prison, uh, <coughs> writes to those who are not in prison, saying, I don't want you to lose heart at my sufferings for you. Usually, prison ministry works in the other direction. Those who aren't in prison are comforting those who are in prison. But St. Paul had the vision to see that God was in control, to see what God was doing, even in circumstances where things were difficult, where there was tribulation and challenge. And so he said to the Ephesians that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Today's Gospel illustrates the truth of this verse. No one in the funeral procession out of the city of Nain would have thought to ask Jesus to raise this boy from the dead. They might have thought to ask him to comfort the widow or to provide for her, but no one would have said, hey, Jesus, raise this boy right here, right now. The gospel scene is wonderful, but it's a bit eerie if you ever can, you can place yourself in it and think in terms of some of the funerals you may have gone to. You're at a funeral, you're finishing the funeral rite, you're about ready to say your final goodbyes, when out of the blue someone comes, touches the coffin, and that person you were about to bid farewell to sits up and starts talking to you. One lesson we can learn from this, it's a really good thing to have Jesus on hand at a funeral. <laughs> but of course, a continual repeating of that miracle would not solve our problem. Jesus raised this young man from the dead, but he died again. He had another funeral. There are two other people in the New Testament Jesus raised, the daughter of Jairus and Lazarus, and they also both had another later funeral. If Jesus stopped every funeral and restored every dead person to mortal life, there would just be a continuing succession of future funerals. It would be really good for the mortuary business, but it wouldn't necessarily solve the problem. What Jesus did was to solve the problem of death by dying for the sins of the world, conquering death, rising to new immortal life on Easter Day, and sharing that new immortal life with us through the gift of the Holy Spirit, of which baptism is the outward and visible sign. The New Testament calls the gift of the Spirit a down payment on our own future resurrections. Jesus is not likely to interrupt any of our funerals to give us a few more years of mortal life. What he does promise is that our funerals are not the last word. We will have a share in his Good Friday, but we will also have a share in his Easter. The New Testament describes the future resurrection in this way. 1 Corinthians says, quote, The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 1 Thessalonians says, Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise. Philippians says, quote, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, according to the power which enables him to subject all things to himself. Jesus himself said, This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. What we have in the gospel, then, is an illustration of our future resurrection. At the end of time, the Lord, the Word of God, through whom God created all things in the beginning, he will appear and he will speak again. He commanded the son of the widow of Nain to rise, and on that day he will utter a universal command to the dead of every age who believe in him. He will say, rise. We will rise into eternal embodied life in God's new and redeemed creation. Now that is exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think. Of course, this is precisely at times what we're criticized for believing. That is, we have this sort of pie-in-the-sky future hope. What does it have to do with what we're going to do tomorrow? We have to admit as Christians that we haven't always articulated a good answer to that. The main problem is to understand how that future hope connects to our current practice of the faith. Most Christians tend to separate their future hope from their current life. We all do it, at least in some ways, and there are matters of degree. But until they have some reason to think about that event, that event of their death, death is brought to mind. People are completely caught up in the concerns of time career, family, business, and other temporal urgencies. And this separation is evidenced by a dearth of prayer. Since the eternal does not seem to have anything to do with what's actually going on in time, there is no uh, evident regular connection to what is eternal. However, the Bible teaches us that the resurrection is not just something out in the future. It is something that is happening to us already right now. The epistle says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, that is, that works in us right now. God is raising the dead right now. He is working within us in the midst of the various daily events of our lives to change us from weak sinful, mortal creatures into virtuous, strong, holy, and immortal sons and daughters of God. As 2 Corinthians says, quote, even though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. We participate in this work of God through prayer. Our prayer is not primarily about asking God to give us things or even asking God to give us some future thing called heaven. Our prayer is primarily about how we experience God's transforming presence in our lives right now. 
Prayer invites God's presence into our lives. Prayer develops our spiritual vision. It enables us to see, like St. Paul, how God is at work in the midst of the chaos of this world. Many people see prayer primarily as a way to ask God to save them from pain. And we all do that. We all ask God to save us from our pain. And God does save us from some pain, but some pain is inevitable. The Bible is clear that God saves us through our pain, not from our pain. Good Friday comes before Easter. On Good Friday, God was doing exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. But all we could see when we look at the Good Friday scene is gross miscarriage of justice and terrible suffering. But that was the raw material God used to create Easter. In the gospel, the tragedy of this funeral was the occasion for the resurrection of the young man. And our lives in Christ follow this same pattern. We have afflictions that seem pointless if we only look at the visible pain, if we only focus on what we can see. But our pain in Christ is the purposeful pain of the new birth. It is the birth pangs of God's new creation. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. This perspective is hard to embrace in our time. Our culture teaches us to run from our pain and it gives us numerous convenient painkillers in order to help us do it. It is thus a challenge to hold on to and practice the faith that teaches us that God works out his purposes through our pain, that our pain is purposeful, that the goal is not to avoid it, but to understand it rightly and to experience it faithfully. As Hebrews says of Jesus, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Prayer helps us to narrate our lives in the right way. Through prayer, we ask different questions. Not why is God doing this to me, but what is God doing in me through this? Not how is my life and my prayer making me happy, but how is my life and my prayer making me holy? (coughs) Once we shift the focus from time to eternity, we realize how essential it is to pray without ceasing. Without constant prayer, we cannot see or experience what God is doing. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. He will not only raise us from the dead at the end of time, he is raising us from the dead right now. And that is why we come to the altar of God. We come to receive the eternal food that feeds the eternal life that God has planted within us so that we might experience the power of Jesus' resurrection today. The second Corinthians says, quote, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight 
of glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.